Welcome to the Certified OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS test. Okay, so today we are going to talk about the knee ligament sprain clinical practice guideline. Um, So there are two that you'll see that are on the site when you open them. So there's a 2010 and then there's a 2017 update. Um, For this particular CPG, there aren't necessarily a ton of really um, major changes, but I still think it's important to read both and make sure that you're aware of maybe some of the things that are a little bit different um, and just be be, um, you know, aware of both CPGs. And also there's some things that are more detailed on the 2010 and they sort of just reference it on the 2017. So, you know, my initial recommendation on this is just to go ahead and read both. I'm going to talk about both of them as I go through this, but um, I do think it's important to read them both. So um, we're going to start with just talking through some of the incidents um, under the diagnosis impairment section. So In this, they do talk a lot about ACLs. Um, We will also do the ACL clinical practice guideline, but just be aware that um, there is a lot of discussion of ACL injuries in this CPG as well. So um, the incidence incidence rates of ACL and MCL injuries are high in in physically active individuals. Um, It's substantially higher in military and professional athletes and moderately higher in amateur athletes. The ACL injury rate remains high in young female athletes compared to male athletes of similar age um, in comparable sports, and most injuries are non-contact injuries. So for both males and females, most ACL injuries are non-contact. So in girls, the highest per season injury risk levels were seen in the following sports, and these are in order of highest risk to a little bit lower risk. So soccer, was the most um, high-risk sport for ACL injuries, then basketball, and then lacrosse. In boys, it was football, and then lacrosse, and then soccer. So the rate of second ACL injury to the same and contralateral knee progressively rises from the time of surgery, and young female athletes who have returned to sport are particularly vulnerable for a second ACL tear. Um, So there were a couple studies that I want to make some notes on. They talk about um, quite a few studies in the CPG, and there is sort of a takeaway um, kind of theme to that. But a couple things I wanted to note just to kind of get the point across. So a systematic review with meta-analysis reported the second ACL injury rate to be 15%. So 8% to the same side, 7% to the opposite side. Patients younger than 25 had a second ACL injury rate of 21%, and athletes younger than 25 who returned to sports had a second ACL injury rate of 23%. Uh, Female athletes after ACL reconstruction and returning to sport are four and a half times more likely to sustain an ACL injury within 24 months compared to female controls. And a systematic review of studies with a minimum of five years of follow-up after ACL reconstruction reported an ipsilateral ACL graft rupture rate ranging from 1.8% to 10.4% and a contralateral ACL injury rate ranging from 8.2% to 16%. Um, So the, the kind of overall takeaway from the studies that they talk about in the CPG is that there's a higher 
incidence of ACL tears in females than males, which I think most of us have probably seen. Um, and that after an ACL injury, you're more likely to have an ipsilateral or a contralateral ACL injury. So does this seem to be pretty consistent with what you see, Amanda? Yes, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm, I am a, the prime example of the I tore one ACL and literally exactly 24 months later tore the other one when I was playing soccer in high school. That's what happens. You know, female athlete playing soccer, both of them went. So, um, so yeah, so this is definitely something I think all of us are probably pretty familiar with and see most of the time um, in these injuries. So the um, pathoanatomical features they discuss, so non-contact ACL injuries are likely to happen during deceleration and acceleration motions with excessive quad contraction and reduced hamstring contraction at or near knee, full knee extension. ACL loading was higher during the application of a quad force when combined with knee internal rotation. A valgus load combined with knee internal rotation or excessive valgus knee loads applied during weight-bearing activities. Um, so that's kind of the most common for ACL injuries. Now, if we're talking about a PCL injury, the most common mechanism of injury for that was what they call a dashboard or an anterior tibial blow injury, which was 38.5%. Um, the next most common mechanism of injury for a PCL injury is a fall on a flexed knee with the foot in plantar flexion. So they note that was 24.6%. And last, uh, the other mechanism of injury you'll see with a PCL injury is a violent hyperextension of the knee joint, which was 11.9%. Um, so obviously, I mean, I haven't seen nearly as many PCL injuries. I would imagine you've probably had the same experience. Yeah, I haven't seen a ton of them. The ones I have seen are um, usually conservative management mm -hmm. and sometimes when I, I have seen PCLs I can't say that they've been acute yeah. enough that the person has identified a specific mechanism of injury sometimes I think your PCLs don't even def deficient PCL deficient patients don't even know it until they have right. imaging yep um, so the vast majority of MCL injuries involve a sudden application of a valgus torque to the knee which is typically a direct hit to the lateral aspect of the knee with the foot in contact with the ground um, the LCL, we all know, is the main structure responsible for resisting various forces, um, particularly in the initial zero to 30 degrees of knee flexion, and it has a role in limiting external rotation of a flexed knee. So that's all they really say about the LCL. They don't necessarily talk about, um, you know, what the typical mechanism of injury is, but I think it's just not nearly as common, obviously, as, as MCLs, ACLs. Um, so I don't think there's quite as much research on LCL injuries. Um, and then they talk about the posterior lateral corner. So an isolated injury to the posterior lateral corner can occur from a posterior posterior lateral directed force to the proximal tibia with the knee at or near full extension, forcing the knee into hyperextension and varus. Combined PLC injuries can result from knee hyperextension, external rotation, and varus rotation, complete knee dislocation, or a flexed and externally rotated knee that receives a posteriorly directed force to the tibia. So it's basically putting strain on that posterior lateral corner with any of these um, mechanisms of injury. And um, so then they also know that a review of two ACL reconstruction registries identified sport-specific patterns to knee ligament injuries. 
Soccer accounted for a th- over a third of ACL reconstructions and was used as a reference sport for all other sports. Skiing injuries had 1.13 times the likelihood of isolated ACL injuries, two times the likelihood of PCL injuries, and nearly two times the likelihood of MCL and multi-ligament injuries. So um, basically with skiing, you're most likely going to see multiple ligament injuries versus just the isolated ACL, although it is common with skiing. So um, that's really what they talk about with the pathoanatomical features, mechanisms of injury, that sort of thing. So do you have anything to add to that? I don't necessarily. Um, you know, I, I can't say I see a ton of right now in my practice. I don't see a ton of acute ligament mm-hmm. injuries. The one thing I will say about the LCL is even though they don't reference it that much in here, I do think clinically it's still really important, obviously. Yeah. And I would note that I think it just based on my experience tends to be a, a highly irritable structure. Mm-hmm. Um, inpatient. So just be aware of it, that even if it's not directly injured, it's still worth um, your clinical judgment on how to manage right. that. And I think it's more of like to where people, and I guess this is probably why they don't talk about it as much as it seems to be more of like an over use or like a stress type injury versus um, like an acute you know, trauma, trauma to that yeah. joint, just because we don't necessarily get pushed into a varus force at the knee as often as a valgus. So um, agreed. Agreed. Okay. So then they talk about clinical course. So the clinical course for most patients after ligament injury and surgery is satisfactory with no differences between graft type or timing of surgery, which I thought was interesting. So um, overall, when they looked at things and, and looked at the research, they didn't necessarily see that early, you know, surgery versus waiting a little while was necessarily made a difference or difference between graft type. So there wasn't a huge difference there. Um, The rate of return to any sport are good, but there's substantially lower rates for return to pre-injury levels or competitive sports. Uh, Physical impairments, performance-based tests, patient reported outcomes, and psychological responses may influence return to sport rates. And other important factors include fear of movement or re-injury, athletic confidence, self-efficacy, and emotions after ACL reconstruction. Um, I definitely, I mean, personally, when I went through this years ago, it was definitely, there was a, a major emotional aspect to it. And I have a patient right now that I'm working with who, you know, he, it's a second ACL tear for him within the year and, and there's a lot of that going on where it's just frustrating. He's watching his friends play and he's not able to participate. And um, I think it's something that's really important for us to make sure that we're addressing that, you know, go, go a little beyond agree. just the, how is your knee feeling today question. I would agree. I believe it's in the current concepts on the knee. I'd have to really go back and look specifically, but they talk a lot about copers and non-copers mm-hmm. with ACL. Um, if you're not familiar with like the outline differences between the physical and the psycho emotional type components of defining someone as a coper or non coper, when you're talking about ACL specific injuries, I would become really familiar with that. It's not something I would say I was heavily exposed to before I studied for my OCS. Um, and I came across it during my studying and then talking to some other people, it's really enlightening. Mm-hmm. Um, and you will find, if you study up on some of that, you will find patients really do fall into one or the other. And there's some hard and fast data going on out there about how do we classify people and what does that mean for their long-term prognosis and our management of Right. Right. And then you consider somebody like, you know, the, the kid I'm working with right now, 
he had a re-tear within, you know, he went back a little too soon. And so now there's this other mental hurdle of, well, it could totally happen again. You know, like it's going to take a lot to get him past that beyond just, I mean, I can work with him forever, but there's a, a psychosocial factor to that that needs to be addressed for sure. So, um, Okay, so then we're going to talk a little bit about risk factors. Um, so mostly when they're talking about this, and there's 2010 in the, that CPG, I'm going to talk about exactly what they say there first, and then they did some 2017 updates. Not a huge difference, but I just want to note those. Um, so in 2010, what they said, so this is talking about a non-contact ACL injury, what the risk factors are. So um, clinicians should consider... The shoe surface interaction, increased BMI, narrow femoral notch width, increased joint laxity, pre-ovulatory phase of the menstrual cycle in females, combined loading patterns, and strong quadriceps activation during eccentric contractions as predisposing factors. And again, this is for the risk of sustaining a non-contact ACL injury. The vast majority of PCL, collateral, and multiple ligament injuries are the result of contact injuries. So many times if you're going to see, you know, a few of those major ligaments torn at the same time, it's going to be a contact injury. And there is a lack of evidence, obviously, regarding the risk factors for those injuries. Um, You know, and this kind of goes back to like when people say, can we really do injury prevention? Well, obviously, when it comes to a contact injury, No, I mean, you can train forever and be the strongest person, but if, if you're in a situation where there's contact and, you know, you can't control all the factors there. So, um, with the 2017 updates, basically what they say again, for ACL non-contact injuries, they noted that dry weather and artificial turf surface are potential risk factors for ACL non-contact injuries, um, being female, narrow interchondral femoral notch size, lesser concavity depth of the medial tibial plateau, greater anterior to posterior tibiofemoral joint laxity, a prior ACL reconstruction, and familial disposition are associated with ACL risk. Um, They do say that conflicting evidence exists regarding the magnitude of the posterior slope of the tibial plateau as an ACL injury factor. And there is a lack of evidence um, existing regarding biomechanical and neuromuscular risk factors for non-contact ACL injuries in male athletes. So um, they're not really seeing the same like biomechanical things that they do in research on females in males to be able to say, oh, you know, these are the specific factors that would put a male athlete at ACL risk versus a female. We're going to go through the diagnosis classification of, and we're going to go through the 2010 summary. Um, And with that, you know, there really weren't 2017 updates. So I'm just going to kind of go through this um, from the 2010 summary. So the ICD diagnosis of a sprain of the ACL and the associated ICF diagnosis of knee stability and movement coordination impairments are made with a reasonable level of certainty when the patient presents with the following clinical findings. So the mechanism of injury consists of deceleration and acceleration motions with non-contact valgus load at or near full knee extension, hearing or feeling a pop at the time of injury, hemarthrosis within zero to 12 hours following injury, history of giving way, 
a positive Lachman test with soft end feel or increased anterior tibial translation, and a positive pivot shift test. The next one they talk about is anterior cruciate ligament sprain associated with ICF diagnosis of knee stability and um, movement coordination impairments. So this one they're talking about the um, six meter single limb timed hop test result that is less than 80% of the uninvolved limb. Maximum voluntary isometric quad strength index that is less than 80% using the burst superimposition technique and reported history of giving way episodes within two or more ADLs. Um, so that's kind of talking about just the, the sp ACL sprain um, ICD diagnosis. The next one is the ICD diagnosis of a sprain of the PCL and the associated ICF diagnosis of knee stability and movement coordination impairments. So with this one, you're gonna see a posterior directed force on the proximal tibia. So that's that dashboard or anterior tibial below injury fall on a flexed knee or sudden violent hyperextension of the knee joint, localized posterior knee pain with kneeling or deceleration, a positive posterior drawer test at 90 degrees with a non-discrete end feel or an increased posterior tibial translation, and um, a posterior sag or subluxation of the proximal tibia posteriorly relative to the anterior aspect of the femoral condyles. Um, so that's the PCL. The next is going to talk about a sprain of the MCL with the ICF diagnosis of knee stability and movement coordination impairments. So with this one, you'll see trauma by a force applied to the lateral aspect of the lower extremity, rotational trauma, medial knee pain with valgus stress test performed at 30 degrees of knee flexion, increased separation between the femur and the tibia with a valgus stress test performed at 30 degrees of knee flexion, and tenderness over the MCL and its attachments reproduces familiar pain. That's the MCL. And the last one is the ICD diagnosis of a sprain of the LCL and associated ICF diagnosis of knee stability and movement coordination impairments. So varus trauma, localized swelling over the LCL, tenderness over the LCL and its attachment reproduces familiar pain. Lateral knee pain with varus stress tests performed at zero and 30 degrees of knee flexion an increased separation between the femur and tibia with various stress tests applied at zero degrees and 30 degrees of knee flexion. So again, I mean, those are kind of just a little repetitive in terms of, um, you know, what you're going to see with each of those, but they give you a few specific tests. So those are kind of good to go through. So you'll see those on pages um, A12 through like A13 on the 2017 um, version of the CPG. So the next part, um, when you get on to page A14, they have the um, decision tree. And this is a pretty good one for the knee, I think, um, to make sure that you go through and know. So the first component is, of course, the medical screening. So we're going through those three questions again. Are they appropriate for physical therapy, evaluation, and intervention? versus are they appropriate for physical therapy and consultation with another healthcare provider? And then the third option is always if they're not appropriate for physical therapy, and then you're going to refer them out. So um, if they are appropriate for physical therapy, you're going to look at the differential, um, differential evaluation of clinical findings, um, suggestive of musculoskeletal impairments of body functioning and the associated tissue pathology or disease. 
Um, and then they kind of list out. So, um, like I said, I mean, you definitely want to read through this decision tree. The next part they talk about um, the diagnostic classification criteria for knee ligament sprain. So it's a lot of the stuff that we've already noted, like symptom onset linked to a trauma, deceleration, cutting or valgus motions associated with the injury, a pop heard or felt at the time of injury, that hemarthrosis within zero to 12 hours, knee effusion, sense of knee instability reported, excessive tibiofemoral laxity with cruciate or collateral ligament integrity tests, pain symptoms with cruciate collateral ligament integrity tests, lower limb strength and coordination deficits, impaired single leg proprioception imbalance, and abnormal compensatory strategies observed during deceleration or cutting movements. Um, so once you've kind of classified the condition, then you're gonna look at the stage of irritability as the third component. Um, so diagnosis of tissue irritability is important for guiding the clinical decisions regarding treatment frequency, intensity, duration, and type with the goal of matching the optimal diagnosis, I'm sorry, the optimal dosage of treatment to the status of the tissue being treated. So there are cases where the alignment of irritability and the duration of symptoms does not match, requiring clinicians to make judge judgments when applying time-based research results on a patient-by-patient -patient basis. Do you have anything to add so far? Yeah. No, I, no, yeah. keep going. So, so the next component on the decision tree is your measures. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this. So I'm not going to read this section, but there are a lot of um, impairment measures that they talk about that are really good for knee ligament um, sprains, as well as self-reported measures. Um, so there's multiple, they have them listed there. It's really just a list. They don't go into like details about them, but um, they do later on. So we'll talk about that. Um, and the next thing is intervention strategies, which again, we'll kind of get to this a little bit more, but they know, you know, early rehab strategies, like immediately mobilizing, using ice, early weight bearing, continuous passive motion and um, neuromuscular e-stem. And then getting into those early to late rehab strategies, you're going to use your therapeutic exercises, your neuro rehab, your supervised rehab and education counseling strategies. Um, so it's just kind of a nice, like, there's definitely not all the details that you need in this decision tree, but it is helpful to just kind of look at step-by-step -step exactly what they're recommending you do with these patients. So it is a pretty good one to know. Um, and like I said, that's page A14 and a little bit onto A15 uh, in the 2017 CPG. So make sure you take a look at that. Um, yeah, it's a good chart. It outlines things really yeah. well. It's yeah, it, and it also kind of gives you a checklist to look through, I think, on like some of the um, different outcomes to kind of, okay, I know that one. I'm comfortable with that one. Um, so you can kind of check those off and make sure you know all of them. So um, the next section, they talk about differential diagnosis. I've said this with probably every CPG I've done, but basically what they note is if you're suspecting something, um, you know, different, serious pathology, um, you want to refer them out. Or if they're not getting better within a reasonable amount of time, then you want to refer them out. So um, things should kind of go the way that you're anticipating and you should see the things that are noted in this CPG in order to diagnose them. So um, the next part is imaging studies. So I think that this is also a really important section to understand with the knee. So when a patient reports a history of knee trauma, 
we need to be alert for any sort of presence of knee fracture. So what they recommend using is the Ottawa knee rule, which is one that you should all know very well. Um, it's been developed and validated to assist clinicians in determining when to order radiographs in individuals with acute knee injury. So what the Ottawa knee rule says is um, you should order um, imaging or refer them for imaging, obviously. Um, if they are age 55 or older, they have isolated tenderness of the patella with no bone tenderness of the knee other than the patella, tenderness of the head of the fibula, inability to flex the knee to 90 degrees, and inability to bear weight both immediately and in the emergency department for four steps regardless of limping. So those are the, the um, factors that you need to know for the Ottawa knee rule. So they actually note in here too, and I think this is really interesting, that clinical exam by a well-trained clinician appears to be as accurate as MRI in regard to the diagnosis of cruciate or meniscal lesions. A lower threshold of suspicion of a meniscal tear is warranted in middle-aged and elderly patients. So basically what this is saying is, you know, if you follow these rules and you go through the examination, it's just as accurate as them getting an MRI in terms of diagnosis of cruciate or meniscal lesions. Um, they do note that MRI may be reserved for more complicated or confusing cases. Um, and it can also assist a surgeon in preoperative planning and predicting the prognosis. So um, yeah, a lot of times we can say, we think this is torn, that's torn, whatever, but the surgeon's still gonna want the MRI so that they know exactly they have a better idea. I shouldn't say they know exactly. They have a better idea of what they're getting into. So do you have anything to add with that? No, not necessarily. I think, you know, one thing they don't mention in here that I think is important if, you know, yes, that's true. Uh, you know, I've seen that study before where they talk about cl like clinical exam by well-trained clinicians. I think the point there being well-trained oh, yeah. clinicians, if you treat predominantly geriatric population, like you're like, not so right. much. You yep. know what I mean? You, it's really, they're talking about clinicians that really treat in sport type clinics and settings on a f like full-time yep. basis. So just be aware yep. of that. Absolutely. All right. So the next section we're going to get into is the examination section. Um, so with the outcome measures, I do want to make note on a few of these they talk about some different ones in the 2010 versus the 2017 um, CPGs. Like there's some that they don't mention so much in the 2017 that they do in the 2010. Like I said in the beginning, I would read through all of it. I would be familiar with them all, um, but just know that um, there is a little bit of a difference there. So I'm not going to necessarily go through all the details on every single one that they note because I don't think that's like super, super important, but the ones that they note in 2017 are still really important. I'm going to go through a little bit more detail on those. So um, what they note in the 2017 CPG is that clinicians should use the IKDC 2000 or COOS and may use the Lysome scale as validated patient rated outcome measures to assess knee symptoms and function, and that they should use the Tegner scale or Mark's activity rating scale to assess activity level before and after an interventions intended to alleviate the physical impairments, activity limitations, and participation restrictions associated with knee ligament sprain. They also say that clinicians may use the ACL RSI as a validated patient-rated outcome measure 
to assess psychological factors that may hinder return to sport before and after interventions intended to alleviate fear of re-injury associated with knee ligament sprain. So they don't talk about the ACL RSI in the 2010 CPG. They just note that in the 2017. Um, but the other ones they definitely do talk about. So I wanted to just touch on a couple things with those. Um, so for the um, COOS, the knee injury and osteoarthritis outcome score, um, it's a patient-reported assessment for evaluating sports injuries and outcomes in the young and middle-aged athlete. So there's five domains, nine items related to pain, seven items related to symptoms, 17 items related to ADLs, five items related to sport and recreation, and four to knee-related quality of life. And each item is graded from zero to four. Um, and those are, uh, each subscale is summed and transformed to a score of zero, which would be the worst, to 100, which would be the best. Um, and so they talk a little bit more in detail about that. Um, they, and they don't necessarily list off like the MCID or anything like that, but that's definitely an outcome that you want to be familiar with. Um, the next one is the International Knee Documentation Committee 2000 Subjective Knee Evaluation Form, or the IKDC 2000, and that's a joint specific outcome measure for assessing symptoms, function, and sports activity pertinent to a variety of knee conditions. Um, this form has 18 questions and the total score is expressed as a percentage. So it's been demonstrated to contain items regarding symptoms and disabilities important to patients with an ACL tear, isolated meniscal tears, or knee osteoarthritis. Um, and then they talk a little bit about the, some of the research that they've done on this um, specific outcome. And they noted that the um, MDC for the IKDC was a score of 12.8 for knee disorders. Um, and based on the close agreement of the cutoff score in MDC, a score of 11 and a half is necessary to distinguish between those who have improved and those who have not improved. So um, just a couple of things to note about that one. The Lysome knee scale was originally designed for follow-up evaluation of knee ligament surgery. The scale contains eight items of symptoms and function, and it scored from zero to 100. Um, and instability and pain are weighted the most heavily. So it is um, arbitrarily graded as 95 to 100 is excellent, 84 to 94 is good, 65 to 83 is fair, and less than 65 is poor. Um, so the research to date on validity, sensitivity, and reliability of the lifetime scale is inconclusive, um, and it may, be, it may prove to be more meaningful when it's combined with an activity rating scale. So this isn't necessarily one that you would do by itself is what they're saying there. Um, the Tegner activity level scale was developed as a score of activity level from zero to 10 points. Um, the scale grades a person's activity level where zero is on sick leave disability and 10 is participation in competitive sports at the national elite level. Um, and this one is commonly used in combination with the lysome. The uh, last one I'm gonna talk about is the Marks activity level scale. Um, and that's a patient reported activity assessment. It contains four questions evaluating high level functional activities. Um, each score is rated zero to four based on the frequency per week each item is performed. And it's designed to assess the patient's highest peak activity over the past year. Um, so this scale has been validated but the responsiveness has not been determined is what they note there. So 
those are the only ones I'm going to talk about. There are a few others that they kind of note in there. So I would read through and be um, familiar. I know personally, I've mostly used the Coos. I don't know about you. Yeah, I, I generally mm-hmm. use the Coos for that, for that specifically. Yeah. Um, I will say too, uh, the LAFS sometimes also. Yeah, I'm just by default if they get that when they come in. I don't, in my place, I don't always have control over what they're mm-hmm. filling out. And I think that's true a lot of places. Um, but I can't say that even though I use the LAFS sometimes, it's probably the best. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's very like general, um, <laughs> the LAFS. I feel like you can use right. it for a lot of different things. So I agree. I've, I've used oh, that sure. one a lot for knee injuries. Um, but if I'm going specific, I go with the Coos. Um, the other ones I'm, I'm not so familiar with um, from clinical use, but you want to know them anyway and just have a good understanding of what they are. So, um, okay. So the next section, they talk about physical performance measures. So there are a lot of them. Um, so they look a lot at single leg hop tests. So like the single leg hop test for distance, crossover hop test for distance, triple hop test for distance, and six meter timed hop. Um So these physical performance measures, they can identify a patient's baseline status relative to pain, function, and disability. They can detect side-to-side asymmetries, um, and they can also assess global knee function, as well as determine a patient's readiness to return to activities and monitor changes in the patient's status throughout the course of treatment. So, you know, these are things that once it's appropriate to assess, um, it gives you a lot of information about how they're doing from their injured leg to their non-injured leg um, and you know obviously how they're doing from one session to the next so if you look through pages a 17 through 24 on the 2010 guidelines you'll see where they give quite a bit of information about each of these so I think that those are really important to look through Um, I'll talk through them briefly but they are written out you know in these nice little charts which I think is really good Um, So on the single limb, single hop test for distance, um, you're looking at the activity limitation with jumping. Um, So really what we're measuring here is the distance a patient travels when a single hop on one limb is performed. So you're gonna have them stand on their uninvolved limb with toes on the starting line. They're gonna hop as far forward as possible and land on that same limb. Um, So that distance is measured from the starting line to the point where the patient's heel landed. Um, So there's two practice trials and two recorded trials, and then the testing is repeated on the involved limb. And wearing a functional knee brace is recommended for all patients post-injury or less than one year post-surgery with this test. Um, I do think it's important to know that they want you to do this on the uninvolved limb first. Um, And just from my own clinical experience, I think it's really important to have them get the feeling of what they're doing and have a little bit of confidence it's obviously not going to feel the same on the involved limb, but if they can try it on the uninvolved limb first, they're going to be less hesitant on the involved limb. Um, and they talk a little bit too about, so they want you to measure that in centimeters and they give you some information on, um, you know, what to expect from like if a patient had an ACL reconstruction and test retest reliability. So they do that on each of these. Um, the next one is the single limb triple hop test for distance. So that's looking at the distance a patient travels when three maximal forward hops are performed in succession. So the patient's going to stand on the uninvolved limb with the toes on the starting line. 
they're going to perform three consecutive maximal hops as far as possible forward and land on the same limb. The distance hopped is measured from the starting line to the point where the patient's heel landed after the third hop. They're given two practice trials and two recorded trials again, and it's repeat, then repeated on the involved limb. So, and again, they want you to have them wear a functional knee brace for all patients post-injury or less than a year post-surgery for this one. Then they talk about the single limb crossover hop test. So this is measuring the um, distance a patient travels when three maximal crossover forward hops are performed. So for this test, the patient's gonna stand on the uninvolved limb with the toes on the starting line. They're gonna perform three consecutive maximal hops as far as possible forward and land on the same limb while alternate, alternately crossing over a 15 centimeter strip on the floor. The distance hopped is measured from the the distance hopped is measured from the starting line to the point where the patient's heel landed after the third hop. Again, two practice trials, two recorded trials, then repeat on the, un on the involved limb, and we want to try and wear a brace for this as well. Um, single limb six meter hop test for time. So this is the amount of time a patient needs to hop on one limb a distance of six meters as quickly as possible. So you're going to have them stand on the uninvolved limb with the toes on the starting line. Um, you're going to give them a command of ready, set, go, and that's when the timer begins. The patient hops the six-meter distance as quickly as possible with the test limb. The testing stops when the subject crosses the six-meter finish line. So again, two practice hops um, and then performs two recordable hops, and the testing is then repeated on the involved limb, and we want to wear a brace for this as well. The next one they talk about is the modified stroke test. And this is looking at the amount of fluid in the knee joint measured by visual inspection by the clinician. So a stroke test is performed when the patient in supine, is in supine with the knee in full extension and relaxed. Starting at the medial joint line, the examiner strokes upward two or three times toward the suprapatellar pouch in an attempt to move a fusion from the knee. The examiner then strokes downward on the distal lateral thigh, just superior to the suprapatellar pouch toward the lateral joint line. A wave of fluid may be observed within seconds on the medial side of the knee. So have you done this one? I, no, I can't I say either. I have. Um, <laughs> so I'm not as familiar with this, but um, they have a units of measurement on this for grading. So a zero would be no wave produced with the downward stroke. Trace would be a small wave of fluid on the medial side of the knee. And then they have one plus, which is a large, larger bulge of fluid on the medial side. Two plus effusion completely fills the medial knee sulcus with downward stroke or returns to the medial side of the knee without downward stroke. And a three plus would be the inability to move the effusion out of the medial aspect of the knee. So I would be familiar with that one. It's definitely not one that I personally use clinically, um, but they have it in here. So, and the last one um, specifically I'm gonna talk about is the bulge sign. So this is looking at the amount of fluid in the knee, again, measured by visual inspection. Um, so the examiner with one hand located superior to the patella pushes the tissues and possible fluid inferiorly towards the patella. Keeping this hand in this position while holding pressure on these tissues, the examiner uses their other hand to press the medial aspect of the knee just posterior to the patellar edge to force any fluid within the joint laterally. While watching the medial joint area, the hand over this area is taken and used to press quickly along the lateral, so the opposite aspect of the knee, looking for a fluid wave to present medially. 
Um, and the units of measurement they just use with this is absent and present. Again, I haven't done this one. Um, is this one that you've used? No, yeah. No. <laughs> I usually just like measure yeah, their edema <laughs> with like. <laughs> yeah, a, a couple of these tests are in here, so I do think they're important to know. Yeah. Um, at least familiarize yourself right. with them, um, because I think you will probably see them yeah. at some point. Um, but you know, clinically. Clinically, I can't say that I use every single test that no, they mention in all these no. CPGs. So then they talk about knee passive range of motion and active range of motion. So making sure that you're measuring that. Um, the Lachman test. So this is looking at the anterior tibial tr translation of the femur. Um, I would imagine this is probably one that most of us are a little more familiar with. So you're having the patient lie on their back. Um, you have the femur stabilized with one hand and the patient's knees in 20 to 30 degrees of flexion. You're going to use um, your opposite hand to apply force to the posterior aspect of the proximal tibia. Um, so you're giving that anteriorly directed force um, at the tibia. So increased anterior tibial translation with a soft endpoint compared to the contralateral side constitutes a positive test, which would indicate disruption of the ACL. Um, and in here, they do talk about units of measurement, which, you know, you're kind of grading based off of, um, you know, what you're think, what you're, you feel like you're feeling, um, normal to severely abnormal. And then they also talk about, and I would definitely know this stuff, the sensitivity specificity. So sensitivity of this test is 85%. Specificity is 94%. Um, and they have a few more measurements in there too, that I would definitely take a look at, but those are, I think probably the most important, um, and then they talk about the pivot shift test. So the amount of anterior tibial translation in respect to the femur. Um, so we're kind of looking at that ACL disruption again with this one. The pivot shift test is performed with the patient in supine involved limb in, limb in an extended position. Uh, the limbs picked up at the ankle with the examiner with one of your hands. And then your um, that hand internally rotates the knee and flexes the knee from full extension while applying a valgus stress with your other hand on the lateral aspect of the proximal tibia. So as the knee is moved into flexion, a sudden reduction of the anterior sublux lateral tibial plateau indicates a positive shift test, which again suggests a disruption of the ACL. And that sudden reduction typically occurs at about 20 degrees of knee flexion. Um, so again, they talk about the sensitivity of this is 24% and specificity is 98%. Um, the other thing they talk about measuring is maximum voluntary isometric quad strength. Um, so they give a little bit of, you know, information on how to measure that. Isokinetic muscle strength, um, the posterior drawer test. So that's going to look at um, the PCL. So that's where you have them in supine with the knee flex to 90. Um, you're sitting at their foot and you're going to give them... Um, you're going to apply pressure through the thenar eminence of both hands on the anterior aspect of the proximal tibia. And so that posteriorly directed force is applied to displace the tibia and increased posterior tibial translation with a soft endpoint compared to the contralateral side constitutes a positive test indicating disruption of the PCL. And this test has a sensitivity of 90% and specificity of 99%. They also talk about the posterior sag test, which I mentioned earlier. 
Um, so you're going to have the patient lie on their back. You're going to hold the heels of both limbs um, and flex the knees to 90 and the hips to 90. And the position of the proximal tibia of the involved limb is compared to the contralateral side. So if you're seeing more of a sag on the involved limb, um, relative to the femoral condyles as compared to the opposite side, then that's a positive test and it's suggestive of a, a PCL rupture. Um, and that's got 79% sensitivity and 100% specificity. So then they talk about um, pain with valgus stress test at 30 degrees, laxity with valgus stress test at 30 degrees, various stress test at zero and 30 degrees. Um, and they kind of go through just, I think we're all pretty familiar with those, but obviously you can kind of review um, what they explain on there. And I do think, again, they, they note some sensitivities and specificities that I think are good to know. So with the pain with valgus stress test at 30 degrees, um, you're gonna have 78% spe sensitivity and 67% specificity. And laxity with valgus stress at 30 degrees, it's going to be 91% sensitivity and 49% specificity. And those are both looking at, um, you know, separation between the tibia and femur at the MCL during that valgus stress test. And the last one with the varus stress test at zero and 30, um, you know, they're looking at separation between the tibia and femur at the LCL during that varus stress test performed at both zero and 30 degrees of knee flexion. Um, with this, they do say there's no quality studies that have been assessed uh, of the various stress tests. So they're not going to give you the sensitivity and specificity of those. Um, so with that, again, that was pages A17 through A24 of the 2010 guidelines. They do note in the 2017 guidelines that um, when evaluating a patient with a ligament sprain over an episode of care, clinicians should use assessment of impairment of body structure and function, including measures of knee laxity, stability, lower limb movement coordination, thigh muscle strength, knee effusion, and knee joint range of motion. So basically the same thing as 2010. They're just kind of reiterating, like, you need to make sure you're doing all of these different things and looking at all of these different things. So um, I know that's kind of a lot. Do you have anything you want to add to those specific tests or... No, not necessarily. I mean, I definitely would make sure that you review your sensitivities and mm -hmm. specificities and make sure, you know, I feel like people interpret that a little bit differently, but make sure you know what's ruling in what, what's ruling yeah. out what. Um, it's going to help you in any kind of case study and differential diagnosis. Yes, absolutely agree. Okay, so the last little section of this, we're almost wrapped up here, is the um, intervention section. So just a couple things that they talk about. So the first thing they know is continuous passive motion. Um, so clinicians may use continuous passive motion in the immediate post-op phase to decrease post-operative pain after ACL reconstruction. Um, they don't really go into a whole lot of detail about it. They basically just say it can help a little bit with pain. Um, so, you know, that's what they would recommend it for. Um, early weight bearing is the next one, and that can be used for patients following ACL reconstruction without incurring detrimental effects on stability or function. So they want you to, to try and get them weight bearing early. Uh, knee bracing. So the use of functional knee bracing appears to be more beneficial than not using a brace in patients with ACL deficiency. Uh, the use of immediate post-operative knee bracing appears to be no more beneficial than not using a brace in patients following ACL reconstruction. 
which I thought was really interesting because I think they all get braced right away. Um, but they do note that it, there's not a huge difference. Um, conflicting evidence exists for the use of functional knee bracing in patients following ACL reconstruction. So clinicians should elicit and document patient preferences in the decision to use functional knee bracing after ACL reconstruction as evidence exists for and against its use. Um, and knee bracing can be used for patients with acute PCL injuries, severe MCL injuries, or PLC injuries. Um, and then the next section they talk about is immediate versus delayed mobilization. So clinicians should use immediate mobilization within one week after ACL reconstruction to increase joint range of motion, reduce joint pain, and reduce the risk of adverse responses of surrounding soft tissue structures, such as those associated with knee extension range of motion loss. Um, so I think we've all probably seen this with, I know I used to see a lot of total knees, um, so I saw it a lot with them, but also with your ACLs that if you don't get that knee extension back right away, it is a pain. Yeah, and honestly, I've seen a lot of surgeons even start waiting to do any kind of surgical intervention on ACLs until they'll send them to therapy first well, just to work extension, on getting right. extension. Yeah, they won't operate on them until they have it because mm -hmm. it's that important. Yeah, yep. So I, I think that's a huge education point on day one, too, with your patients that don't necessarily want to move the knee or don't want to extend it all the way. Um, it's just so much better if they push through it in the beginning. So much better. Um, and then they talk about icing. So cryotherapy, clinicians should use cryotherapy immediately after ACL reconstruction to reduce postoperative knee pain. They don't talk about for how long. And, and I think that's the question I always get and whether it's the knee or something else is how long should I ice for? Not necessarily like in once, but like how many weeks or how many months or whatever. Um, you know, they don't give any information on that. And here they just say immediately after the surgery, obviously it's a good idea. Um, we don't need that much swelling in the knee for healing. So we want to get some of that out of there. Uh, supervised rehabilitation clinicians should use exercises as part of the in-clinic supervised rehabilitation program after ACL reconstruction and should provide and supervise the progression of a home-based exercise program, providing education to ensure independent performance. Um, so, you know, home exercises are obviously super important in all of our patients, but definitely in this population um, to get that range of motion back early on, to build that strength back, to get that quad firing um, and we want to make sure we're progressing these people at an appropriate rate. And, you know, as you're moving through your protocol or whatever, make sure you're updating the home exercises as well as your in-clinic exercises. So therapeutic exercise, weight-bearing and non-weight-bearing concentric and eccentric exercises should be implemented within four to six weeks, two to three times per week for six to 10 months to increase thigh muscle strength and functional performance after ACL reconstruction. Uh, then they talk about neuromuscular electrical stimulation. So they recommend that neuromuscular electrical stimulation should be used for six to eight weeks to augment muscle strengthening exercises in patients after ACL reconstruction to increase quadriceps muscle strength and enhance short-term functional outcomes. I think this is something I typically do. Is it something that you do with your ACLs? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Very rarely <laughs> does someone come in that yes. I'm like, oh, you don't really need it. Like they pretty much all need it right away. So um, I don't know that I always right. use it Earlier for six to eight weeks. No, That's a I, long I can't time. say use it that long, but I do yeah. use it initially. That um, is a long but time. But they said that it, it should be according to the evidence. So 
And then the last thing they talk about is neuromuscular re-education. So neuromuscular re-education training should be incorporated with muscle strengthening exercises in patients with knee stability and movement coordination impairments. So I think this is all intervention-wise pretty straightforward. There really wasn't anything in here that necessarily surprised me. Um, I do think, you know, in terms of like the continuous passive motion, it's not something I ever think of for ACLs. Um, but again, they, they mostly note that just for post-operative pain management. So. The one thing I will add to that is, you know, we could have a whole episode on ACL protocols and exercises that include therapeutic exercise and neuromuscular reeducation intervention specific. You know, it really doesn't matter what interventions you're doing. You need to, again, kind of like we said in the hip CPG podcast, you need to make sure if you're getting frequent referrals from a certain surgeon, you need to make sure that you understand their guidelines. And then within that, I think you have some variability, but also don't forget that we know that specificity of training really matters, um, especially in these patients who are wanting typically to get back to something very dynamic. You know, be creative. You work within the guideline that the surgeon gives you, but really make sure you're not undertraining these people and get, you know, give them specific enough exercise to get back to what's really mm -hmm. important to them. That's how you're going to get better patient buy-in too. Um, the other thing I will say just with ligament injuries is I think a lot of times they're discharged too early from therapy. You know, I don't know that you need to keep them on forever, but a lot of times I don't think, I think we miss that whole, like trying to prevent, like you talked about Alexis, that injury prevention, you know, we can't re-prevent every injury, but I think there's a lot that are. And I think part of our job as therapists is to really train these people back to maybe better than where they were to try to reduce their risk. So really not cutting their rehab short and really making sure you're including all those components of Therax and NeuroRead at different stages. Right. And with that, I think one of the challenges that we as a profession are facing is when we have these patients, particularly like post-op ACLs that want to get back to high level sport, um, but really any of these ligament injuries is we often do get cut off by insurance or, um, you know, it's something mm -hmm. we're being aware of. Like I don't take insurance at my practice, but when I was working with that, I would always think like, okay, well, if it's March and you only get 30 visits of the year, I don't want to use all 30 on this because what if something else happens? You know, you try and be like, look at the patient as a whole person. Right. And so, mm -hmm. you know, be creative with this. Um, one of the things that I've done and this is just me on my soapbox, this has nothing to do with the CPG, but one of the things that I've really done in my practice is gotten to know trainers in the area, because there are some trainers who are really great, and they're well-educated, and they can take these people, and you can give them a couple like, hey, you know, these are the types of things we're working on, and try and get those patients to, like, seek out that next level, so before they get back into training specifically, or I guess participating specifically in their sport, get them training for their sport. Right. So be creative because sometimes, yeah, they might get cut off by insurance, but they might be willing to go work with a trainer a couple of days a week to really get them back to that sport specific training before they're back to their sport. Right. And I think that, like you said, Alexis, with the insurance stuff, I think that comes down to somewhat our responsibilities, clinicians too. You need to figure out that if you have a really compliant patient, you know, you don't have to no. see them twice a week 
for the standard 12 to 16 weeks. I mean, if they're doing really well after week eight, move them down to right. once every other week. You know, if you're confident that they can maintain, you know, that's what I'm talking about. It's got to be patient specific. You can't like cookie cutter these patients. And I think all too often ACLs specifically end up as like in this cookie cutter program that I don't think is serving the patients. Right. As well I agree. As and yeah, absolutely. That was definitely the other thing that, um, that I really do with people. I mean, I generally only see people once a week at the most anyway, but, um, you know, don't, you don't have to see them two, two to three times a week through their whole, if they're going to be compliant and especially in the beginning where they're not doing a ton of stuff, like why do we need to see them two or three times, you know, for them to do heel slides right. and quad sets and, you know, just be, be aware of your patient's insurance benefits and, and your patient's preferences. And that's a good conversation to have on the first day is, you know, Hey, this is how many visits we have that we want to be strategic about this because you want to get, what, what is it you want to get back to? Oh, you want to get back to being competitive? Here's our game plan. Um, you got to be a little fluid with that because sometimes right. things don't go as planned, but I think being aware of that is super important. Right. It's not something you want to figure out at visit right. 25. Yeah. yeah. And I've seen that happen to many therapists. They figure out at visit 25, yep. they have a yep. problem. And then it's kind of too late to do anything about it. Yep. And the patient's upset. I totally agree. So, um, you know, that being said, again, that's just our personal, I guess, suggestions of, of ways to kind of help these people long-term, but yeah. So that is the general gist of these, the knee ligament CPG. Like I said, um, you know, make sure you're familiar with the 2010 and 2017. That's my best recommendation, uh, for, for this next year's test. Um, and next up, what do we have, Amanda? Meniscus and articular cartilage. All right, so we'll do that one next time. So um, and as always, if you guys have questions, comments, whatever it might be, uh, just shoot us an email at certifiedocspodcast at gmail.com. Great. All right, thank you very much.